0: Not long ago, I came across this piece of advice in the Wall Street Journal. It said, Never be financially dependent upon anyone else in your life. Don't rely on a parent, a spouse, or a boss. It will only erode your self-worth and negatively impact the important relationships in your life. Instead, learn to save money, make money, and then you can rule your own world. In an article in the Atlantic Monthly magazine, I read a similar piece of advice that a real estate developer gave to his children when they were young. Never trust anyone, he would tell them, apparently. Not anyone. And then he would try to trick them. Can you trust me, he would ask his kids. Initially, their answer was yes, with the innate trust that little children have. Yes, Daddy, of course we can trust you. But his answer was no, you can't trust me either. What did I tell you? Never trust anyone. It sounds harsh, but you might call this the gospel of our time, the gospel of self-reliance. Of course, it's not a new idea to our time. You can find the same thing in the old Johnny Cash hit, A Boy Named Sue, where, if you remember it, you find out at the end of the song that the boy named Sue's father named him Sue because he knew he wouldn't be much of a dad. But at least if the kid had to grow off, grow up fighting off everyone who picked on him for having a girl's name, then he would be tough enough to look out for himself. Self-reliance. Self-worth. Ruling your own world. Never being dependent on anyone else. Never trusting anyone. Being tough enough to fight for yourself. It's the kind of worldly wisdom that one often hears. And I didn't have too much trouble coming up with examples to illustrate it, drawn from someone on the political left, someone on the political right, and a 1960s country song. It's all over. I begin this way because I think it helps us see how very different the message of the book, the message the book of Ruth is. You might say, the gospel according to Ruth. This is the last Sunday of our Ruth sermon series, and if Ruth is a kind of 3,000-year-old romantic comedy, then this week is its happy Hollywood ending. Ruth and Naomi started out the story with nothing, Ruth having lost her husband and Naomi her husband and two sons. When they arrived in Israel, they still had nothing, with Naomi full of bitterness and grief after all the loss in her life. We saw that the story was moved forward at every stage by the quality of mercy, said, steadfast and sacrificial love and faith. Ruth bound herself to Naomi, even though she had every reason to expect a worse life than if she'd stayed behind in Moab. Ruth went out to glean in the fields, even at great risk to herself, as a Moabite woman unprotected and on her own in a foreign land. Boaz had heard of the kindness and favor that Ruth had shown to his family, and in return he showed her far more favor and kindness than the law prescribed. His kindness then emboldened Ruth to follow what seems to have been a fairly crazy plan from Naomi to ask for his hand in marriage. As their kinsman-redeemer, marrying Ruth was taken to be a package deal, where he bought the family farm that poverty had forced Naomi to sell, and then gave it back again to be inherited by Naomi's family line. Boaz did far more for Ruth and Naomi than could have been expected, not merely out of a sense of duty, but out of what seems to have been a costly, sacrificial, genuine love. Naomi and Ruth started out the story empty, but they wound up full. They who were hungry were fed. They who were poor became rich. They who had no family were blessed with a son-in-law, a husband, and a son. The family line had come to an end, but the story ends with new life and the promise of a new future. Now that we've gone through it all, I think you'll agree with me that it's a beautiful and moving story. It's a tale as old as time as the teapot in Beauty and the Beast sang. The last chapter that we read today is the part of the story where the happy couple finally wind up together. It's the part of the rags-to-riches tale where the heroes who started off with nothing now have everything they could have dreamed of and more. It's the part of the closing montage in the movie where the bride and the groom have a new baby in their arms. The grandma's there, and the whole village is gathered around cheering, and it fades to black with you knowing that everything is as it should be. We see that this is a happy ending. We all want some version of this, I think. Yet the stories that we tell about how we get to this kind of happy Hollywood ending differ a great deal. There are lots of stories where the hero makes his or her way in the world by trickery and subterfuge, like P.T. Barnum or Dickens' Artful Dodger, who always has one more trick up his sleeve. The moral of that kind of story is that if you want to get ahead in life, you need to be smart enough to fool most of the people most of the time, as was Barnum's ambition. Another kind of story that's fairly popular is all about the self-made man or woman, the sort of person who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and makes his fortune, the entrepreneur who makes it big and doesn't suffer fools easily. The moral of this kind of story is that if you want to make it in life, to find your own happy Hollywood ending, you need to outshine everyone else through sheer pluck and hard work. My guess is that we've all heard some version of these stories time and again. We may well have told them to ourselves, or even tried to live by them. they the story of salvation by self-reliance. The stories assume that at the end of the day, you really can't trust anyone. And that if you want to find your happy Hollywood ending in life, you have to make it for yourself. No one's going to make it for you. As appealing and as commonsensical as that may sound, I can't emphasize strongly enough that this is not the story of Ruth. Because Ruth if we think about it, doesn't resort to trickery in order to get Boaz's hand in marriage. My view of Naomi is that she may very well have resorted to trickery. She may have had it in mind in the elaborate scheme she proposed to Ruth uh, to follow to get Boaz to marry her, but Ruth nevertheless chose another path. Ruth straight up asked Boaz for his hand in marriage and all that went along with it as their kinsman redeemer buying the family farm and giving it back again to Naomi's family line. She could have resorted to trickery, and with everything on the line for her, that would have been fairly understandable, but she didn't. Instead, she was open and honest. She had seen Boaz to be a trustworthy and faithful man of God, and so Ruth chose to trust him. I could imagine the story of Ruth going in an entirely different direction, too, especially if it were written today. Instead of the narrative turning on whether or not Boaz would marry her and redeem the family line, you could have had a story about Ruth and Naomi as self-made entrepreneurs. Maybe they could have sold the excess barley that Boaz gave them and used the capital to start a small business in the village, until one day they became just as prosperous as Boaz himself. Of course, I doubt that this kind of story would have been written about women 3,000 years ago, but if Ruth were written today, I could easily see it sounding something like that. There's an aspect of this story here that we have to confront head-on if we're going to understand it. Because the story of Ruth might sound to our ears too much like the kind of Someday My Prince Will Come fairy tale where a woman sits around waiting waiting for a man to come sweep her off her feet and rescue her. Well, Boaz is definitely the redeemer in this story. There's no two ways about that. Or, better put, the one through whom God acts to redeem Naomi and Ruth. But, I think this is one of those instances where the Bible is written from within a social context, yet the main point it's trying to make is different. Yes, Boaz is the redeemer here. But I don't think the moral of the story is that women need men to save them. What we see here instead is a version of a story that the Bible tells again and again. Little shepherd boy David defeats Goliath with just a slingshot. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho by marching around the city and blowing horns. Gideon defeated an army of thousands with just 300 men. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage to the promised land by God's power and God's word. Again and again, the Bible has a simple message for us. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Ruth and Naomi aren't the saviors of the own story. And I don't think that Boaz ultimately is the savior here either. The ultimate redeemer in this story is God. God uses Boaz to be sure to show favor and kindness and steadfast love to Naomi and Ruth, far beyond all requirement. But his heart is moved by Ruth showing favor and kindness and steadfast love to Naomi and her two sons. The quality of mercy, faithfulness costly love, gift beyond all measure, is, you might say, its own character in the story, moving in and through all of the characters and sweeping them up in a drama of redemption, hope, and new life. I was deeply moved, as I think many were, by watching what happened at the sentencing of Amber Geiger this past week. And that nearly everyone in Dallas watched what happened there. I think everyone knew, or should have known, that what Amber had done had taken away the life of a precious child of God far too young. And I think it's fair to say that most people thought she deserved real prison time for doing it. I think Amber knew that. I think it's fair to say that given the loss of young Botham Jean's life, and given the real fear that so many people of color have that one day their brother or their son will be cut down like him. Well, there was no reason to expect a whole lot of love and forgiveness in the courtroom that day. So when Botham's brother, Brandt, got up and told Amber that he forgave, that he wanted most of all for her to know how much Jesus loves her, and then they embraced like family, and then when Judge Tammy went into her chambers and brought back her own personal Bible to give to Ember and asked her to go and read John 3.16 and wrapped the condemned and guilty woman in her arms. Well, there is so very much today that cries out to heaven for justice, especially for the bottom genes of the world who live in fear of violence. There's so much work for them that can and must be done. Yet I couldn't help when I watched that episode unfold. That costly love and unexpected grace showed up in person in the courtroom that day, as you might say, as its own character in the story, far beyond measure, far beyond anyone deserves or has a right to expect, and started to catch everyone up in that room who was full of emptiness and grief and bitterness in the direction of redemption, new future, and a new hope. Love and costly grace showed up in the story of Ruth and Naomi, you might even say in person, and brought about redemption and new life in the village of Bethlehem. One day, years later, in the very same place, to the very same family, love and grace showed up in person once more and began to work redemption and new life into the story of the whole world. It's a story that's still being written. Your lives, our lives, this city, this country. We, too, can follow the footsteps of Ruth and Boaz with faith and grace and costly love and be written into Christ's story of redemption. May we all have faith, like Ruth's, and trust that the way of steadfast love, no matter what, and costly grace that she followed, is the way of new life, God's way to bring redemption into your life and our world. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts.